0: want to open our hearts and receive from you. We've had the privilege of remembering you through communion. And we pray here today that as we open your word together, that you might speak to each one. In the holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, it's great you can be here today. Welcome everyone again. Welcome to the second part of our series, The Life and Teachings of Jesus. Uh, today we're going to be looking at the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship. Now you've heard uh, me share last week that this series is largely about what does it mean to be a disciple and how did Jesus make disciples. Um, I'll mention the study book one more time as well. As part of the discipleship process, of course, uh, We can do more than listen to the preached Word of God at church, as important as that is. And, of course, as was mentioned, you can catch up with these messages online if you want to hear it a second time or you missed it because you couldn't be at that Sunday. But secondly, we're encouraging people, use this in your personal quiet times. They're freely available. Uh, Spend some time further reflecting on those passages and uh, considering the thought-provoking questions. And as well, we're encouraging people to consider joining a small group Bible study. I was actually at the Friday night one uh, this week. Uh, Tom leads that one. He's uh, theologically trained and he's an excellent Bible study leader. Uh, very, very gifted in that role. And, um, you know, it just helps this journey. We're listening to the preach word, we're further med- meditating on its passages, we're discussing it in a small group. And finally, I'd always say to people, let's live it out. Let's apply it in our ministry teams. Let's apply it in our workplace. Let's apply it in our families. Let's live out the things we're learning. Well, today, as I said, the topic is the cost of discipleship. And let me me read to you the primary passage we're basing this in. It's Luke 14, 15. It's often referred to as the parable of the great banquet. When one of those at the table heard him, uh, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and uh, I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and um, I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I've just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. The owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered... Has been done, but there is still room. Then the master of the house told his servant, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquets. This reminds me a little bit, believe it or not, of um, my wife's 21st. We were newly married and. Uh, I didn't necessarily understand um, how ladies communicate that well. Probably still don't. And uh, I'd asked Pamela, um, do you want a 21st birthday party? And she said she didn't. I asked her a second time. She said she didn't. So the day before her 21st birthday, she was very surprised to discover I had not organised a party for her. (laughs) I said, but you said you didn't want one. She said, of course I want one. Anyway, so I'm, I'm frantically on the phone then, that day, calling up our friends, but a little bit like the parable. All alike, they began to make excuses, and uh, uh, it's, uh, yeah, 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 to yeah, some, um, uh, <laughs> that's true, it is the 3rd of January, and that is true, some of them were on holidays, and some of them just had stuff on that weekend, and anyway, in the end, a lot of them couldn't make it. Two-thirds of our friends couldn't be there. Um, And then Pamela had a fantastic idea. Uh, Pamela was studying to be a nurse at the time, but what she was doing as a job part-time was working in residential support homes. Uh, And so it was fairly new at this time that um, the government had decided they wanted to get intellectually uh, handicapped people out of the big institutions and get them into residential homes where they could live a a more normal life. Uh, But many of them only had the intellectual ability of a two- or three-year-old, and so they needed carers. Well, Pamela was a carer. There was a job, a couple of different residential homes. And she thought, well, why don't we invite them? that's a great idea. And so we we did. We invited them. And also, Pamela and I both used to uh, sometimes connect uh, with teenagers at a fusion house. Uh, For those who don't know what that is, um, many years ago, Uh, Malgarvan organised these homes, uh, it was government supported in the end, where um, teenagers, it might be because of violence in the home, it might be because of drug use, it might be because of sexual abuse, whatever, they needed to get out of the house where they were living at least for a time, it's not necessarily long term, but a few, few nights or a few weeks. And um, Pammy and I connected with one of those houses and, of course, these young people were too cool for school. You know, they had their trendy haircuts and their trendy clothes and they had a bit of attitude and stuff. We invited them as well. <laughs> and so it was an interesting mixed bag at the, at the 21st. <laughs> And uh, one of my favourite moments is one of the young guys I'd been connecting with, he was a 17-year-old, and he played guitar, and he had a pretty cool haircut and stuff. And we were having a jam, and one of, one of the intellectually uh, handicapped girls, she keeps coming up to him, brushing his hair, and said, oh, my boyfriend, my boyfriend, my boyfriend. And uh, we had a big barbecue on the go, and she accidentally burnt the back of his neck with a sausage when she was brushing his hair anyway, he took it really well. I was actually uh, surprised at how well he took all of that. But it was a fascinating experience. And afterwards, we thought, that was great. That was great that we actually uh, had a bunch of friends not coming, so we decided to do something different. And uh, it reminds me of this parable a little bit. <laughs> Let me give you uh, something of the context of this parable. So the opening chapter that is based in the opening verse, rather, of the chapter, uh, 14.1 says this. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. So the big banquet that um, Jesus has been invited to, the host is a prominent Pharisee. Pharisees who were generally wealthy, they were well-to-do, respected in the community. Um, the banquet would have been filled with other well-to-do Pharisees and their families And um, Jesus was a very famous prophet by this time, and so the token guest here was this new famous prophet, and they're watching him carefully because a lot of them, they weren't sure he really was a prophet of God, and they didn't like all this sensational stuff like healing the sick and so on and his massive following of thousands. They they were looking at him with a measure of scepticism. There was scrutiny taking place. Well, it uh, goes on to tell us 14.13, Jesus says here... When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Uh, I remember Pamela and I thinking at the time, people who often are most neglected in society are those with intellectual disabilities. Um, Jesus is doing something here very politically incorrect. This guy has invited him as a guest to his big banquet, and Jesus has a go at him. So said, why is it all the middle-class wealthy people here? Why didn't you invite any poor people? Lame, sick people. No outcasts. Well, um, you know, the other guests thinking, oh, the host is going to be insulted by this. Someone quickly changes the topic. Verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, ah, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Well, this doesn't really deter Jesus, but he uh, then goes on to tell them a story. 14.16, Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. That's probably confusing for us because we we get an invitation. It says the date and the time. Um, That wasn't the case in the Middle East at this time, um, the Bible commentator that I think is very helpful to explain culture is William Barclay, very good on New Testament culture. He says that what, the way it worked back then is that a date would be given. That would be sent out. So save this date. Might be a month in advance or whatever. So that village knew there was a big banquet on that date. The time was not mentioned because they didn't know what the time was going to be. As the preparations were were done, eventually everything was ready. Their messengers would go around the village and say, it's all good now, everything's done, it's all set up, the banquet's ready, come. And so that's why it's worded the way it is. 14, 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Now, we don't get the humour of this by first reading it, but what Jesus said here was quite funny. The guests probably all laughed because, like you do in humour, he reversed something. Now, let me try and get your head around it. What if um, you're out one day and uh, there's a small picture in a real estate agent, house for sale, and you decide to go straight to the bank? Sign some contracts, buy the place. You come home that evening, you say to your wife, I just bought a house today, perhaps we should go and have a look at it. It's not the way you do it, is it? You go and have a thorough look, even if it's online, but you have a thorough look, and then you buy it. Same in Jesus' day. You didn't buy a field and then go and have a look at it. No, if you were going to buy a field, you went and had a look at the quality of the soil, you saw if there was any permanent water source there, you checked it out, and then you bought it. So the guests, when he words it this way, it was funny. They would have laughed. But Jesus is also playing on the weakness of the excuse, I believe here. Um, And the fact is, here is a man, he's given the example of, who's increasing his asset base. Buy another field, another investment property. Got to keep building that asset base. Haven't got time for this banquet. And the challenge is that Jesus is creating here with the banquet of heaven, that many are making excuses. They don't have time for this invitation of this new prophet, this Jesus, who is saying that he's introducing the kingdom of God, but they don't have time to listen to this. Um, They're caught up in the things of the world, such as building their asset base. I'll make three headings today, three things to think about to put in their right place. One is assets assets. I want to make the suggestion, you know, that in our um, country of Australia, our history has influenced the way we see material things. We're actually a very materialistic people. One of the most in the world, I believe. And you know where I think it comes from is the days of our ancestors in the mid-1800s. A lot of people think we're influenced by our convict heritage. I think that's very little influence on us, because the population explosion took place in the mid-1800s, where tens of thousands of largely British people came out to, especially New South Wales and Victoria, because of the huge amount of gold that was being discovered here. Phenomenal amount of gold. And That the materialistic kind of thing. Well, you know, money is really important, and the people it attracted was businessmen and entrepreneurs, and those who wanted to get rich quick. And Australia quickly became um, one of the most affluent nations on planet Earth in a matter of a few years. Phenomenal. Let's have a look at one of the examples here. Have a look at this nugget. This was uh, found in Victoria. The beauty, isn't it? I'd Like to come across that one. 69 kgs worth of gold there. It's quite a bit, isn't it? Um, 87,000 kgs of uh, value of gold at the moment. That's about $6 million bucks worth there. Uh, so the guys who, who discovered it, you don't get the full amount of your gold, of course, but the fellows who discovered it, they did get equivalent to $1.7 so they didn't do bad out of it. Um, but that, if, if they'd got the actual full worth of that gold when it's processed and everything, it's about $6 million, uh, in today's standards. And the amount of gold that was coming out of Victoria and New South Wales was absolutely phenomenal. Um, I think that heritage has actually influenced us. And uh, to give you an example, a modern day example, uh, as far as people owning and buying their own home, uh, let me read the precise wording of this. Per head of population, we have the highest home ownership of any nation. So... Uh, Let me read it again. Per head of population, we have the highest house ownership of any nation, meaning that we're either we own it or we're buying it. What does that mean? It just says stuff is really important to Australians. We like to own stuff. It says we're smart, too. Obviously, better to buy than rent. But at the same time, it does say something of us. Materialism is very important to us. We see it as a very important thing. But, friends, let me suggest this the pursuit of assets can prevent us. From seeking first the kingdom of God. It can block our ears to the invitation of the, to the master's great banquet. Jesus, not long before this um, parable is told, he says this. 12.15 of Luke. Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And doesn't mass media say exactly the opposite to us? If you just buy this sporty car, you know, if you just have a certain lifestyle, if you have a house in this particular suburb, if you just buy this, um, uh, I don't know, this big high-tech entertainment system, if you buy this stuff, then you're going to be happy, then you're going to have life. But Actually, Jesus says, no, life doesn't consist in an abundance of possessions. Friends, can I make this suggestion? This morning, I believe as Christians we, we have to make a deliberate decision to place assets at the foot of the cross. But this is actually a choice thing because it will, it's going to be fighting against us because of who we are, because of where we live. We've got to deliberately say, hey, Lord, I'm going to lay the desire to accumulate things at the foot of your cross. So there is a slide for this. Luke 14:19 says this: "Another said, "I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me." Same sort of thing. Same sort of humor. You got the idea? Remember, I talked a little bit about the oxen working together as a team uh, last week. Uh, so uh, you, you throw a couple of oxen together. Uh, they don't cooperate. They've got to be trained to cooperate. And until the weaker submits to the stronger, you can't get any work out of them. Now, what a farmer would often do, the fellow who's raising the oxen and training the oxen, you'll go and check them out and see which ones are working well as a team. You'll say, okay, I'm going to have those five pairs there. They're great. You make your decision based on how they're working together. So when he says, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Same thing. It doesn't go that way. You try them out first, then you buy them. Again, the guests... Probably laughed at this. This was funny, uh, but Jesus again—he's playing, of course, on the weakness of the excuse again as well. Here we see a guy who is um, wanting to, you know, plow more fields, another five yoke of oxen, and plow a lot more fields, plant a lot more grapes, sell a lot more wine, or plant a lot more crops, sell a lot more crops, whatever it might be. You know, he's building his asset base. Big—I want the biggest farm in my region. Let me suggest he's an ambitious man, an ambitious man. Number two, ambition. Can I make the suggestion that uh, we can have an ambition that is surrendered to God or one that was never part of God's plan? And without God, you can realise your ambition and whatever that ambition might be. Let me talk about someone who became the most powerful and wealthy man on the planet. His ambitions were realised. His name was Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 4.28. Let's read a little bit about him. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon, I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. You know, it's I, my, and so on. He's very focused on himself. So you can see him there. He's walking on the top of his, the flat roof area of, of his palace. He's looking out over this amazing city of Babylon that he's built, that he's the king of, and he's looking at his royal residence thinking how magnificent he is. Wow. I've made it. Verse 31. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox. Seven times or seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Wow. He had to go through something pretty Extraordinary, terrible, frightening. Before he submitted to God, the challenge I guess we face from a passage like that is: what circumstances does God need to take us through to bring us to that place of surrender? Can I suggest a second area of ambition? Ambition needs to be placed at the foot of the cross, surrendering our ambitions, putting God first. One more excuse. Luke 14.20 says this. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Now, we don't pick it up from initially reading that, but um, the guy's not saying what we think he is. What he's actually saying is, I have been married within the last 12 months. Let me uh, talk about the scripture that he's actually thinking about. Deuteronomy four five: If a man has recently married, he must not be sent to war or have any duty laid on him. For one year he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to his wife. He is married. I remember my lecturer at Bible College, uh, Tim Dyer, explained this and said that actually when Jesus was telling this story, the first two, they'd have laughed at it. That one, they'd have been shocked. There's no please excuse me in the way the guy words this. He words it very aggressively. And what he's saying, oh, I've been married in the last 12 months. I'm not coming to your, you know, banquet. You know, it's said in quite an insulting way. But even though we've seen the culture of that there, Jesus is still emphasizing something important. When called to the great banquet of heaven, our closest relationships, even our closest relationships, should not create an excuse not to come. The third area I'm going to mention is all relationships. All relationships need to be secondary to the call of Christ. Now, if you think I'm reading too much into that, Shortly after Jesus says that, we see what he says to the crowds. 14.25. Large crowds were travelling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple." That doesn't make sense, but Jesus is always saying, hey, you've got to love one another. Why does he use the word hate here? What's what's that all about? Well, there's two reasons, I believe. Bible commentators will generally mention these two areas. One is Jesus has become extremely popular at this time. Thousands are following him. He's on the mouths of many lips. And he doesn't want people just to follow him because he happens to be popular. He wants to kind of say, this has got to be really heartfelt. This is the real deal here. This is serious stuff. You can't just follow me because I happen to be popular. And so he uses something here to really shock people. But as our great Australian Bible commentator says about the passage, Leon Morris, Melbourne actually, the late Leon Morris, he explains it like this. He says, what Jesus is actually saying, is the difference between, the distance between our love for him and our love for anyone else is as far apart as love and hate. In other words, we're to love him much, much more. We're much more committed to Christ than anyone, even our spouse, even our parents, even our children, and that's a hard call. A lot of people can't do that. I speak to myself as well as I say this. Very hard to make that decision, but unless we can move to that level, He's challenging the people that you can't be my disciple, including yourself, your own desires. You're unsure about that? Let me read a couple of other translations. Luke 14.26, this is how the New Living Translation puts it. If you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father, your mother, your wife and children, your brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple." Or as the good news simply words it, those who come to me cannot be my disciple unless they love me more than they love father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and themselves as well. The uh, motorcyclist and uh, founder of God's God Squad, the evangelist John Smith, late John Smith, had him out to speak at my last church, actually. Great, great man of God. In one of his sermons, Beyond Disillusionment, he says these words. Many try to fill the divine centre with a person. Many try to fill the divine centre with a person. In other words, that aspect of your being, the Holy Spirit is to fill, we fill it with a person. And it can often be a marriage part. If I just marry this lady, then I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be fulfilled. Man, if I could marry that guy, life would be awesome. And Smithy says one of the problems in doing this, we're virtually setting that person up like an idol. And uh, he said, look, one of his fellow bikers that he led to Christ he'd got the message so loud and clear and he, he'd, um, his marriage had fallen apart and he believed that his marriage had fallen apart largely because he'd, he'd placed unrealistic expectations on what that marriage was going to do for him. And so th- this guy, for, for a while, <laughs> he did something pretty weird. He wanted to let people know this is, this is a real thing, this is a powerful thing, we've got to learn this. And so uh, he went down to the heart of Melbourne in his biker leathers, put a pretty little wedding veil on, People walking past everywhere and held up a little sign and it said, Don't try to get from your partner, or you can only get from God. But the remarkable thing, John Smith tells on the story, he says, it was amazing how many people stopped and wanted to talk with him about it. Finally, friends, can I suggest this? We must place all relationships. All relationships need to be placed at the foot of the cross. I realise this is challenging stuff. And it's one of the reasons that Jesus chooses a graphic image to try and emphasise what it means to be his disciple. Let me read these words again. 14.27 And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me, cannot be my disciple. And friends, for you and I, we've seen movies like The Passion that this is taken from. We're used to seeing imagery on the television. But you see, in Jesus' day, it was a lot more graphic. In Jesus' day, people had seen, because thousands of people were crucified on Roman crosses, a form of capital punishment, and so they'd seen people walk through the streets of Jerusalem just like this on their way to execution. They were going to be killed. And they'd, I would imagine everyone had seen it. And so when Jesus makes this graphic statement, it says, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. They knew that Jesus was saying, you have got to die to yourself. Your life is over. Very strong statement. It's a very strong call. You know, um, actually, Brother Tom was uh, just saying in the Bible study, we can choose to kind of get connected. He gave an example of one of the famous American preachers. We can choose to embrace, I guess, a form of Christianity that is really a consumer Christianity, which, you know... Um, Life's all about being blessed. But the reality is we're not being honest with the Scriptures if we do that. Now, I believe as, as anyone called to preach the Word, Tom would, would agree with this strongly, that we need to be honest. What is the Scripture really saying? And yes, at times Jesus was extremely challenging. Are we going to be honest with this or are we just going to try and water it down, push it aside? I still remember a lady in my Bible study group, a lady called um, Anne, she was a fairly new believer herself and she said in the Bible study group, um, it was actually all alpha people, so it was uh, the Bible study of new believers and she said, um, Christianity doesn't really demand as much as like, you know, Islam or Buddhism and uh, I was leading the study and I said, well, I think what you have what you have seen is consumer Christianity, and perhaps you might have kind of bought into that, but that could be not for, nothing could be further from the truth. There are thousands of Christians every year. They are so committed to following Jesus. They end up in prison. They end up tortured. They end up killed. More Christians than any other time in history are dying for their faith. So what you're saying, it might be true of consumer Christianity, but it's not true of real Christianity there is no greater challenge. Jesus wants to further emphasise it by these two short parables. Luke 14, 28, he says this, if one of you is planning to build a tower, you sit down first and figure out what it will cost, talking about the cost of discipleship today, figure out what it will cost to see if you have enough money to finish the job. If you don't, You will not be able to finish the tower after laying the foundation. And all who see what happened will make fun of you. You began to build and (laughs) couldn't finish the job, they will say. Then he gives another example, another parable. If a king goes out with 10,000 men to fight another king, who comes out against him with 20,000 men, he will sit down first and decide if he's strong enough to face the other king. If he isn't, he will send out messages to meet the other king to ask for terms of peace while he's still a long way off. In the same way, concluded Jesus, none of you can be my disciple unless you give up everything you have. Extraordinary statement. Counting the cost of becoming a disciple of Jesus. Let me just put up that one scripture again. 1433, in the same way concluded Jesus, no one can be my disciple unless you give up everything you have. Friends, here today, I'm going to call you before God to surrender. Surrender our desire for accumulating assets and sometimes a busyness that can create, squeezes out a time for the Lord and His work, our ambitions, personal ambitions, not necessarily bad things, but are they in first place, or is Jesus in first place? And also all relationships those closest to us, spouse, parents, children, are we willing to put Jesus above or in first place beyond all relationships? Let's be upstanding as I pray for you. The band's going to return. Father, here today, we've been challenged through the scriptures. Lord Jesus, as you... Both challenged people there in the the, in that banquet setting, and then later, as you you were preaching to the crowds, we realize that um, choosing to follow Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, is not a simple thing. There's a cost, and Lord, here today, as we choose to count that cost, and say, Lord, am I really willing to be a follower? I pray that by Your Spirit, You'd be stirring our hearts that we'd want to be a people to put you in first place, that we want to be a person that is willing to say, look, I'm going to find this difficult, but I know it's what Jesus expects. And so today, Father, I pray that we might be a church where people are willing to surrender. Yes, their desire for assets, their personal ambition, and all relationships, that these things might be secondary, that you are in first place. If you're not Lord of all, then you're not Lord at all. If I'm picking and choosing what I let you be and in, in exercise leadership over in my life, then I'm still in charge. But if I'm willing to say, no, everything, then, only then are you Lord. Help us to count this cost. Be honest. But at the same time, have an open heart to allow you to mould us into the people you want us to be in the name of Jesus.